I've never met anyone who just like a CEO of a company that says, yep, nailed that on the first try and I'm just the boss now. You don't learn a lot from success. And what I've also learned is success causes complacency. That if you're too good at stuff, you're gonna say, well, this is the way we've always done it. And that's where they're gonna get you. You listen to podcasts, read books, follow the experts on social media, and you find yourself getting mediocre results in your business, in your health, in your relationships, and you know you're not living up to your full potential. You've not broken through the limiting beliefs that are holding you back. And if you continue on this path, there are consequences. If nothing changes, imagine looking back in 20 years with regret and thinking, what if? Like, what if I could have found a way to unlock my true potential? Like, how would life be different? Well, you can unlock your true potential. I'm hosting our second annual retreat, May 13th through 15th, titled Moving to Mastery. We're going to take all of the book knowledge that you've learned and all of the life experiences that you've lived and turn it into results. It's going to be an intense weekend of deep learning and powerful, immersive experiences that don't stop when you leave, but actually include an additional 30 days of growth following the retreat. We've reserved a private lodge and event center all to ourselves located on 330 acres just outside of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's an hour and a half drive from two major airports, Dulles and BWI, so it's easy access from anywhere in the United States or Canada. Space is limited, so if you are interested in self-mastery and finally getting the results you know you're capable of, reach out to me as soon as possible to apply. Just go to jimharshowjr.com slash retreat. It's time for you to move to mastery. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr., and today I bring you Rob O'Neill. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he is the Navy SEAL who killed Osama bin Laden. Insane conversation that you're about to listen to right now. Rob talks about how he became a Navy SEAL. He talks about going from SEAL Team 2 to SEAL Team 6, and he talks about the raid where they killed Osama bin Laden. He talks about the weeks leading up to it, the uncertainty, and what they felt was certain death that they were walking into, but they knew it was a mission that they had to do, and then leaving the compound and actually getting back into Afghanistan. And just an incredible story, an incredible saga, and, and then also the pros and the cons of everything in terms of how this changed his life moving forward. Some real crazy things happened to him after that raid. So let's get into my interview with Rob O'Neill, and he just launched his book, by the way, which is called The Way Forward. So check that out, The Way Forward. And absolutely incredible book. I got an advanced copy, so I got to read it before it went on the bookshelves, which is this week as of when I'm launching this episode. But before we do that, real quick, I want to give a shout out to one of my listeners who left this rating and review in iTunes. If you want to hear your name on the podcast and you want to leave me a rating and review, absolutely love to get your ratings and reviews. Those are super helpful in helping other people find these episodes. This is from Mike Perry. He said, it's titled, Want to Be a Better Person? Listen to this podcast. I'll give you the abbreviated version of this, but he said, someone recommended Jim's podcast and it has changed my life. I truly mean that. I picked up skills and mindsets from this podcast that will always be with me and I sincerely appreciate Jim's message. Thank you, Mike, for leaving the message. Listeners, if you can leave a rating and review, that goes such a long way in helping grow this podcast, which helps me bring on even better guests like we have here today, the amazing Rob O'Neill. 
So what led you to becoming a Navy SEAL? Chance. I learned early on that when you make a plan, God laughs at you, that life happens around you. I was actually playing college basketball and my plan was to get an MBA and probably work with my dad as a stockbroker and just had a bad relationship. And it was one of those points in life where I just got to get out of town. And I actually realized later on in life that no matter where I went, be it Fredericksburg, Virginia, or San Diego, California, a local would always say the same thing. I just got to get out of here. And it was just my time. And I went to join the Marine Corps because I had uh, a couple of friends that were Marines that I went to high school with. And again, as luck would have it, the Marine recruiter was not in the office, but the Navy guy was. And I simply went in to ask him when the Marine would be back. And he said, um, why do you want the Marine? I said, I, I want to be a sniper. And he said, look no further. We have snipers in the Navy. All you got to do is become a Navy SEAL first, and then we'll send you to sniper school. And he kind of brushed over that. I didn't know what a Navy SEAL was. I didn't know how to swim. And he showed me the video. And after I signed the contract, of course, it turns out Navy SEALs swim. And I had basically five months from the time I signed to the time I shipped out for the Navy to learn how to swim. I had a friend ended up swimming for Notre Dame, teach me how to swim in five months. So you... You, you sign up for this thing called, you know, the Navy and becoming a Navy SEAL. What was the experience like for you going through the, the eight months of training and BUDS and Hell Week? Well, it was, I mean, it was scary for me because once I actually saw the videos and realized I was going there, it, it, was, it was more surreal than anything. And getting into the training, it, I mean, it was so bad that I remember thinking, you know, I have a past. I don't have a future. I'm just going to be in hell forever. But um. I had an instructor, you hear stuff that they say that SEAL training is, is all mental. It's, it's mental, but it's physical, meaning you can talk your body through anything through your mind. And I had an instructor say that um, regardless of what you've been told, this course is not impossible. Like, look at me, I, people make it through. You, it's possible. So I'll never ask you to do anything impossible, but I'll make you do something very hard, followed by something very hard, followed by something very hard. Yeah, and he's trying to give me the big picture. Just and He said, you know, day after day after day for eight straight months. And that sounds like a lot to get from now to eight months from now. But don't think about it that way because that's not how you achieve a long-term goal. Do it like this. And he kind of broke it down. Wake up in the morning on time. Make your bed the right way and then brush your teeth. You already started the day with three wins. Make it to the 5 a.m. workout on time. And as I'm beating you, don't think about the pain. Concentrate on your next goal in life, which is making it to breakfast. After breakfast, your next goal in life is lunch. After lunch, make it to dinner. After dinner, do everything you need to do to get back inside that perfectly made bed. And because you took the time in the morning to make your bed the right way, regardless of how bad today was, tomorrow's a clean slate, tomorrow's a fresh start. And when you feel like quitting, which you will, don't quit right now. That's your emotion. Quit tomorrow. And if, if you can keep quitting tomorrow, you can do anything. I appreciate you pulling back the curtain on that because I think so many people look at guys like you who are Navy SEALs, this world-class performers and say, ah, things must just be easy for them. They have this stable mindset the whole way saying, ah, I got this and I can do this. And they're, you know, you're running along, you're holding the boat above your head and thinking, you know, I got this the whole time. And it's just, uh, and it's just a foregone conclusion that Rob was going to become a Navy SEAL. That's not the case. There's what a 85% failure rate here. 80, 85% about that. Yeah. And I didn't think I was going to graduate until the last week. When we graduated on Friday, that Monday, it hit me that, oh my God, I'm going to graduate because the last 40 days of this training is all on San Clemente Island, which is off the coast of California. And it's a naval base. And you got to figure this course is the hardest training in the world. It's in Coronado by one of the nicest hotels. And they beat you there in front of tourists. When you go to the island for 40 straight days, they tell you before you go, nobody can hear you scream out here. And that last 40 days is miserable. 
no time off. I'm convinced a lot of the instructors hit the sauce right around noon because they get violent. All you, you, you know, you, you drink water, drink milk and eat good food and you're, they're building you up. And, it, you know, it's, it's tough, but you get done with that. And then all of a sudden you got to graduate. And for me, because it was never going to it was never going to happen. I'm not going to quit, but I'm probably going to fail something. And you do fail things, but they'll give you more than one attempt at certain things to fail to see how you uh, how, how you respond to it. But then you get back on Monday and all of a sudden my parents are flying down and it's it's like an administrative week. Get your dental records uh, up to date, medical up to date, admin stuff. And by the way, you're going to SEAL Team 2. And that's like, well, what does that mean? I, wait a minute. I have to be a Navy SEAL now. What does that mean? And so failure plays a role even in, even in the training, even in becoming a SEAL. Yeah, they, um, they'll usually give you every evolution that we call it, be it a, a timed swim, uh, timed run, timed obstacle course. Weird drills like tied up in the in the pool for an hour at a time doing different drills to see how you respond. You can fail them, and then they'll um, they're teaching you through negative reinforcement that is the only way the only way to learn is to fail. And what did I do wrong? How can I learn? Or do I get down on myself and quit? I've seen guys well, especially when you know we get into a later training for SEAL Team Six, they'll really punish you severely physically for something you didn't screw up to see how you handle not screwing up. They punish you for a mistake that you both know you didn't make to see how you handle making a mistake you didn't make. And the lesson is, you're going to screw up, learn from it, now get over it. Don't dwell on it. You're not getting it back. Learn. When I talk to football teams, I'll tell them, uh, it doesn't matter why it's second and 15. It just is. Learn from why it is and get over it. We'll talk about it later. It doesn't matter how we got here. We're just here. They'll do different drills like that. To, it's, it's all a mental thing because they, they want to see if you can compartmentalize everything that you're doing. So if you fail a two-mile swim, and every there's three phases of SEAL training, every phase, the time gets shorter. So they'll, they'll knock five minutes off the swim. So if you barely pass the swim, now you got to swim it you know, five minutes and five seconds faster. And it's, everything's a mind game, but you got to compartmentalize it. And, and worrying about something that your worry is not going to affect, stop worrying. Like I said, learn, get over it. So in order to become a Navy SEAL, you just have to be the type of person. You have to embrace the mindset that like, you know, when I fail, it doesn't mean I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm no good. I can't do this. It just means I got to come back. I got to do it better next time. And you got to hit it harder, right? Well, even with stuff like underwater knot tying drills, you'll, you'll get four attempts. And I've seen guys up to the third, like they failed their third attempt. And then the realization of, okay, I've failed three times. If I don't pass right now, I'm out. And just, can you do it? Can you suck it up and do it? And I've seen guys that, like, the, the, the knot tying drills, a certain amount of knots underwater, and you have to tie five in a row. And I saw a guy on his last knot drown. And they went and got him, picked him up. He was out for about a minute, minute and a half. They were doing CPR on this kid. When they finally um, brought him to life, his, the first thing he said was, did I pass? He didn't ask about his family. He asked, did I pass? And they said, yeah, you passed. And he said, well, thank God I finally tied the fifth knot. And they said, no, no, you, you didn't tie the fifth knot. But that's not the point. I don't care how many knots you know how to tie. My job is to see how far you'll push yourself. You didn't tie five knots, but you killed yourself. You passed the test. That's all we're looking for. He killed himself trying to pass. And that's like, okay, he didn't get the knot, but that's, we don't care about that. So there's an underlying message. And if you're going to, I've never met anyone who just like a CEO of a company that says, yep, nailed that on the first try. And I'm just the boss now. You don't learn a lot from success. And what I've also learned is success com causes complacency. That if you're too good at stuff, you're going to say, well, this is the way we've always done it. And that's where they're going to get you.
my wife works in the power line industry and I'll talk to the linemen, the guys that get up on the poles and work the power lines. And I'll say when there was a fatality, last time there was a fatality or an injury, how many safe days on that big sign were there? 560? Because that one day, well, we've been doing this, we're safe. Boom. So complacency, failure, success, are all, they're all related. And so for the listener, I, I, apply this to your life. I know we're talking to Rob O'Neill, Navy SEAL, SEAL Team 6. Like, how does this apply to you in your business, in your life, in your relationships, in your health? Maybe you're trying to run a marathon or maybe you're trying to get off the couch and run a 5K like, and you failed. Like, yeah, get used to it. Get over it. And this is, this is the path to success. I think that failure is is misunderstood because a lot of people are afraid of it. And that's why a lot of people won't try. And that almost will lead to uh, a sense of envy and wanting other people to fail because you don't want to try it. But I, I mean, if you, if you just get after it, it's, you know, it's, it's the whole thing with my kids. I tell them, I'm sure you've heard of how do you eat an elephant? Just one bite at a time. I mean, even, even as far as monetarily, you can, you can lose everything and still build yourself back up. People do that all the time. I, I mean, I think I, I fail three times a day before breakfast. Like you, you're going you're gonna to mess something up. Just, just be, uh, be open-minded. Don't place the blame and just learn. I mean, that's, that's all learning is, is, is through failure, right? I'm trying to think of different – I mean, there's so many, so many examples of me failing. Like, I mean, when we went out to Osama bin Laden, the helicopter crashed in the front yard right off the bat. You think it'd be easy to just surrender at that point. We're like, well, this sucks. So I want to talk about the Osama bin Laden raid. First, let's, I want to hear, how do, how do you go from SEAL Team 2 to SEAL Team 6? There's a process. You need to be a Navy SEAL for a certain amount of time. And I think it's five years as a Navy SEAL minimum. Then you need to get recommended by your team to represent them. There's um, about a nine or 10 month selection process. Everything from tactics, physical ability, then to get in your mind, psychiatrists, psych evaluations. Uh, it's a 50% attrition rate, which means... Half of the top 1% of Navy SEALs don't make it through the training for SEAL Team 6. So that's, that's our tier one unit. The reason it's called SEAL Team 6, there's nothing special about it. Um, Richard Marcinko founded SEAL Team 6, I think, in 1980 because we had SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 2. And we divide them by coast. So the, the even numbers are in Virginia, odd numbers are in um, San Diego. So he invented 6 because the Russians would say, okay, there's 1, 2, and 6. Where the hell are 3, 4, and 5? Oh, it's just SEAL Team 6 now. It just sounds really cool. Even though like, it's sort of one of those, well, we can't say the name, but like a little wink, wink, SEAL Team 6. So it's really hard to get there. You need, and it, you need, it's, it's more serious, better budget, better training opportunities, more opportunities to um, develop tactics and weapon systems and stuff like that. And, and then once the war started, well, after, you know, 9-12, then they really started sending us after um, high-value targets, and then we were working every single night. So... There's a lot. And for the listener, we're skipping a lot here, right? By the book, it's phenomenal. But uh, there's so much you know, to this story. But we're going to skip ahead a little bit to the Osama bin Laden raid. Can you take us back to the night when you killed Osama bin Laden and walk us through that mission? Yeah, that, that started about three weeks before we went on the raid for us. There was a group of women one woman in particular that found him. And she's depicted as Maya in the movie Zero Dark Thirty. Highly recommend watching that movie to understand the process behind. It's like, there's so much behind it. We're just the, the sales rep that shows up at the door. Like, except, well, the customer's always wrong. But uh, they found him over the course of years. They presented to President Obama. 
Then they told us about three weeks out because we were one of five options. And they picked a group of Navy SEALs based on performance and experience. The most experienced guys available at the time. And they basically brought us in a room and it started off with, uh, this is this is real. This is not a drill. We found a thing and this thing is in a house and this house is in a bowl in a country and you're going to go get this thing and bring it to us. And that's all they told us. We didn't know where it was, how we're getting there, what country it was. Didn't know if it was a thing or a guy or whatever. But we figured it out. They told us only Navy SEALs are coming. We can't bring our expert uh, communicators, which are Air Force expert uh, paramedics, which are Air Force. We got to bring our own stuff. And then the woman came in the room and said, the reason you guys are here is this is as close as we've ever been to Osama bin Laden. And to hear her say the first time I ever heard the word Abbottabad, which is the city, I was like, this is legit. So, you know, we kind of trained up, talked about it, fat, you know, a lot of stuff here and there, contingencies. Then we flew to Afghanistan. So we got the green light on a Friday night. We didn't go on Saturday because of, uh, believe it or not, because of the correspondence dinner in Washington, because um, they knew the cabinet would be there with the president. If we launched a kill bin Laden, everyone's getting up. The press is going to see it. What is this? We went on Sunday. The reason it was Saturday and Sunday, because they had 0% illumination and we wanted no moonlight. We left on Sunday on a flight that we know was going to get shot down. Like, we're not coming home. This is it. This is a one-way mission because we don't know if the technology works. We know it's not a third world country. They have probably Russian-made anti-aircraft stuff. There's going to be a gunfight, no doubt. The house is probably going to blow up when we get in it. And we're going to run out of fuel. So we're either going to fight the Pakistanis and die or end up in a Pakistani prison and dying a very agonizing death there. Not a lot of good options. So um, we did get the green light. We got into the helicopters and we left. Even our families didn't know where we were. They thought we were probably in the United States. We, um, you know... You sort of call family members, but you can't tell them where you are. I I called my father and sort of thanked him for teaching me how to be a man or something like that. He used to say stuff. I'd call him on missions before and say, um, you know, we got to go to work tonight. And he'd always say, I wish I could come with you. And I would say, yeah, me too, dad. But this time he said, hey, I wish I could come with you. And I said, don't worry, I'm with great people. And so we took off and it was a 90 minute flight. So we crossed the border uh, 90 minutes in. And again, we're at a point where worrying about a missile's not going to stop the missile, so there's no point in worrying about it. So I'm sitting on this trifold chair, and the dog Cairo was next to me, and one of my guys was laying on the floor with his headphones in, listening to music, and he fell asleep. And I remember looking at him thinking, you're asleep on the ride to Bin Laden's house. Craziness. So, yeah, so I was counting. To keep my mind off, and I was counting from zero to a thousand, thousand to zero, 80 minutes in, we banked to the south. Uh, I was counting again. I don't know how I remembered it, but I said um, 556, 557. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward, and freedom will be defended. And I remember that. That's what Bush said on 9-11. And uh, it started to sink in that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on this mission. We're going to kill him. We did one more bank. The doors open. One minute out. You can sort of see the lights. It's a resort town. I know there's a golf course there. And I just started thinking, this is some serious Navy SEAL shit we're about to do. We split off. We were supposed to have some guys fast rope in front of the house. Um, they were going to let us off. Some guys off my helicopter, some snipers and the dog. We were going to go to the rooftop and we're going to hit them this way. So they're going to fast rope. We're going up here. The pilot noticed something was wrong. He had a crash land in the front yard. He, by, by doing that, he saved everyone's lives in the blink of an eye. Because he said if he would have hovered, he would have rolled it. He didn't have a choice, but he... he we were fortunate to have the four best pilots in the world. They were army pilots. 
So he put them down. Our guy saw them do that. So he just let us out there without telling us. And we kind of knew something was up. And I remember sticking my foot out thinking, I guess we'd start the war from here. I could see his house. I know there's a double door right there that we're going to blow up. So I brought the breacher up. He put a huge bomb on the door, blasted that. It opened up, but there's a brick wall behind it. So he kind of turned around and said, well, that's a failed breach. This is bad. And I said, no, this is good. That's like failure. That's a fake door. Nobody does that. He's in there. So then I knew we could blast this door. I didn't know that the other guys were in there. I didn't know they crashed. I I thought they said something else. And I said, hey, this is so-and-so. I'm going to blast the carport. And the guy said, no, don't blast it. We'll open it. And the door opened and a thumb came out with a glove that I recognized. And again, I don't know how they got there, but it doesn't matter. They're just there. Let's go. So we went in there. There's already a gunfight going on. Some of my guys are doing stuff. I get in the, the bottom floor of where you know, his house and other guys are ahead of me. And I'm watching them do little things that the good guys do, like go across a room to grab a kid that's got separated to bring him to the parents. So the kids aren't afraid. Al Qaeda would not do that for us. And I'm thinking these are the good guys. And I was very proud of my guys and they're working their way down. They uh, open another door. And the woman that found Bin Laden said, I don't know where it is, but you're going to find a stairwell. And when you do, you're going to run into Khalid Bin Laden. And that's his son. That's his last line of defense. We ran into him. The front guy took him out. I was about seven or eight guys back. We go to the second floor and everyone kind of split off to the right and left. They're clearing this room. And now there's, it's down to two of us, the last set of stairs. There's one guy in front of me and he's pointing up. And there's a curtain. And he can see people moving behind it. So he's assuming these are the suicide bombers, which we've seen recently. They do this. But if we go right now, we can beat them. We got to go now. And he kind of convinced me. And I'm like, well, this is it. So I, I wasn't bravery. It's like, I'm tired of thinking about it. Let's go. And he went up, moved the curtain. And he jumped on some people that he thought were suicide bombers. So he gave his life for that, for the guy behind him. And because he went here, I went here. And there's Bin Laden standing there. And he's got his hand on Amal's shoulders. And he's sort of pushing her. And I realized um, he's taller than I thought. He's skinny. But he's not surrendering. That's his nose. That's him. He's a threat. So I shot him twice. I shot him again. Moved I moved the wife out of the way, pushed her to the back of the room near the bed. And I, like I, his two-year-old son was there. And here's the human element. As a father, I'm, I thought, this kid has nothing to do with this. And I pick him up, move him, put him next to his mom. Other SEALs are coming in the room at this point. We're getting ready to take his pictures. And I sort of stood back. And uh, a guy comes up to me and he goes, are you okay? And I said, no, what do we do now? And he smiled and said, well, now we find the computers, man. We do this every single night, hundreds of times. And I said, yeah, you're right. I'm back. Holy shit. And he goes, here's how cool Navy SEALs are. He goes, yeah, you just killed Osama bin Laden. Your life should change. Now get to fucking work. That's that. So we got him. We got it. Now it's time to get the stuff and leave. Wow. I mean, when did the enormity of that moment hit you? It sounds like, you know, you, you felt that on the, on the flight in, right? And then there was a moment on the flight out that it sunk in when so the sniper that initiated the fire to kill the Somali pirates to rescue Richard Phillips. So that was our team. We did that too. Um, so he was sitting and, and that was a lot for him to take. Cause that was the biggest mission in the history of the SEAL teams up to that point. And so I would talk to him and when, you know, he would feel down in the dumps or not sure the enormity, I would give him my Copenhagen and say, here, take a Copenhagen. You're a hero. Don't forget that. So now we're leaving on the bin Laden raid and I'm sitting next to him. And there's another dude right here who 
who was on the, the bird that came to get us. He's from New York. His name is also Rob. And he, he, he hit me and he goes, who got him? And I said, I, I did. And he said, on behalf of my family, thank you. And I look at the sniper and he handed me his Copenhagen and goes, now you know what it's like to be a fucking hero. And that's when it's like, holy crap. So that's when it started. And now we're leaving and we have 90 minutes to live on a mission where we're supposed to die. But if we live for 90 minutes, we get 50 years. I get to see my kids again, right? So we're hauling ass. But worrying about it's not going to help. So stop worrying about a missile. But they know we're here now. So you start the stopwatch and you're just watching 90 minutes. It's been 10 minutes. It's been 20. Now it's been 30. It's been 40 minutes, man. It's been 50 minutes. We got to get to 90. And then you start thinking sports. You know, I played basketball. You're a wrestler. I start thinking about like a no hitter at Yankee Stadium, top of the seventh. I'm not going to say anything. 60 minutes, 70 minutes, 80 minutes, 90 minutes. I got to get there. I started thinking about Miracle on Ice when the Americans are beating the Russians. Four to three. They should lose, but they're winning. Ten, nine, eight. And then all of a sudden, the pilot came over and said, all right, gentlemen, for the first time in your lives, you're going to be happy to hear this. Welcome to Afghanistan. Not so. That's all because the butterfly effect. You know, I got dumped by a girl, joined the Navy. Now I'm in Bin Laden's bedroom. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. So two different directions I want to go with this conversation. First is this. So you mentioned the, the humanity actually in the moment, right? When you're killing the world's worst human being, but you, you have a human moment in there where there's his wife and there's the two-year-old son. And you know, most, most people don't even reflect upon that. And that, that moment really struck me in the book when you talked about that, because we don't think about that. We're like, hey, hurrah, you know, you just did it. And, and the, but there's, there's more to it, right? He, he, you know, there's, a, there's a child and a mother and a family. I mean, not even that, but like that, he wasn't the first guy I killed and he actually wasn't the last guy I killed. But, you know, I'm not talking about him, but like there there are guys that I've been in gunfights with that I killed. And I've actually, the further I get away from it, it's like, did we just fight each other because we were born on different sides of the planet? Like if if we had met somewhere else under different, would we have had a cup of coffee and laughed? And that's, that's the PTSD part of it. That There's a very human element. I've gone into the wrong house in Iraq. I remember it was a, there was a woman and her daughter and I tracked mud on their carpet. And I remember thinking, I, I see why they hate us. It's three in the morning, some assholes in here with night vision and muddy boots. You know, it's, it's, it's a, the world's a small place. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Dakota Meyer in the book in one point where, where he actually talked about killing a man with his, with his hands and a rock in his hand. And, and for the listener, you got to buy the book. You got to hear some of these stories. They're just mind blowing. But he, he has this moment where he's, about to kill the guy. And, and he says, I don't even hate him. I don't, I don't even hate him. And we both know what's about to happen. Yeah. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. There's just some uh, very intimate moments. I mean, I, I don't even, you know, I don't get counting how many kills you have, but I think the the furthest one I, I have is, is 20 feet. Like they're all up close and personal. Yeah. And you knew when you were done, right? I mean, you, you talk about that in the book, there was a moment where you knew you were done when the killing had changed for you making a kill. What was that moment like? I um I stopped getting adrenaline in gunfights. And again, that's complacency through success. I'm I think that some people die in combat because they get bored. And uh it, it was just it was time for me. 
because we went from the highest moment in our history, killing bin Laden, a few months later to the lowest when we lost uh, Extortion 17 on August 6, 2011. 31 Americans died in a single shot. And it was like, you know what? It's just too many close calls. A bullet needs to be right once. And that's it. That's all it takes. And it was a lucky shot with Extortion 17 and everyone lost their lives. And I know, I, you know, a lot of kids that won't see their dads again because of that one night. It's like, it's, it's, I'm too close to it. Yeah. So you, you make the kill with Osama bin Laden and, you know, you, you get back to base, you get back to the States. And like you said, everything changed in your life. When word got out about who killed Osama bin Laden, there was resentment, there was jealousy. And you said that began almost immediately. Why? Well, we knew, I mean, we knew right away. As soon as we got back to, um, I mean, we flew from bin Laden's house to Jalalabad, Afghanistan. The mechanics in the hangar pointing at me, like they knew who did it. Every single person who found, as soon as they found out bin Laden de was dead, asked the same question, who got him? Even the guy next to me in the helicopter, who got him? Sure. That's what everybody's going to ask. I mean, you're in a helicopter and people want to know who did it. And then we talk about like the, the highest level of performers. These are alpha performers. And if you're that close to doing something like that, I'd imagine, you know, why wasn't it me type thing? I remember because I went to Afghanistan, one more deployment after that. And I watched a different squadron from SEAL Team 6 jump in to Somalia to rescue Jessica Buchanan from Al-Shabaab, which is Al-Qaeda. And I was watching them live feed being jealous. Like, why isn't that us? And I'm like, oh, wait, we did get Bin Laden. I guess someone else should do something. But I was jealous. And so I get it. And it just, it was, it was tough to go to work. You know, people just, I don't know what it is. It's one of those things where, like when you're a kid and you play a game where you whisper something in someone's ear and they whisper and it turns into a different story. Just shit goes around. So, someone asked me if I signed a book deal for $17 million. And I said, well, first of all, I don't think you know how book deals work because you don't get that big of an advance. But no, I did, but it just... It just became, it became a lot. It was just time to leave. It was my time to get out. Yeah. You know, I guess this just kind of hit me now thinking about this. It would be like, you know, your team goes to the Super Bowl, but in, in some weird alternate universe, only like one guy on the team gets to win the Super Bowl, right? Like it is. And, and to me too, I, I, the team got him. The women that found him, the woman that found him, she was so damn smart. I was smart enough to carry a sledgehammer and a gun and have her go that way, go that way, third floor. That's me. I mean, I was part of the team that got him. Like the helicopter pilots got us there. The air crew opened the door. You know, the breaches ahead of me blew the doors open. I just happened, you know, right place, right time. Yeah. Is where it is. So there's the SEAL ethos sort of historically of the quiet professional. And, you know, how did you feel about starting to speak publicly about the killing of Osama bin Laden? And, and then also, I guess, sort of more broadly, like there are a lot of Navy SEALs out there these days, you know, building brands, building businesses, you know, speaking, et cetera. Well, the SEAL ethos was written well after I got to SEAL Team 6. And I was standing actually with the lead jumper from the Jessica Buchanan mission. So seasoned SEAL Team 6 guys. We, the first time we read it was together. And we said, what's this horse shit? I said, come on. It's like the, the ethos is like, yeah, in, in times of need, there's a man of honor. I'm that man. That's bullshit. I mean, it's just it was written more for a cartoon superhero than the guys they're sending in the middle of the night to kill people. As far as silent professional, I've been to the military section of Barnes and Nobles, and there's a lot of books written by military guys. And uh, I'm happy that like George Washington had a biographer with him when he crossed the Delaware to fight the Hessians. As long as you get it approved, no one's in danger, and uh, you don't give up tactics. I think people should know history. So, at first, it sort of bothered me that they said you shouldn't be talking, but I really couldn't care less now. Despite seeing, you know, and experiencing horrific atrocities throughout your career, you were never evaluated for PTSD. 
And no, I, I got uh, 100% disabled before they got to PTSD. So I said, we're not even going to bother because it's 100%. But I mean, PTSD is definitely real. And I've experienced a lot of it. It's not, it's not cool, but it's very treatable. If places like the VA open their minds to different kinds of treatments, their, their thing is um, give you a pill that sedates you. And then veterans have a tendency, I've done it myself, to self-medicate with alcohol. And that's not the way to do it. There are certain ways they should be. Um, there's different kinds of uh, psychedelic treatments they should be doing. Uh, THC works for a lot of guys. Not, not, not for me, um, but it works for a lot of guys. I just get goofy. <laughs> but there's, I've done certain kinds of treatments that really helped it, that I, I wish people were more open-minded than they are. Yeah, you and Dakota both talk about it in the book. I mean, totally alternative treatments, you know, one that you did that was not sort of, uh, I don't know what the word is, sanctioned or approved or whatever. And then one that the Dakota did that was, he had to go to Mexico for, I mean, but these, I mean, you know, you guys started experiencing PTSD and yeah, bad. And I mean, you said, here's a quote from the book. You said, despite 400 missions where I watched men's heads explode like watermelons or bodies stitched into with machine gun fire or children who saw their parents killed in front of them, you were never evaluated for PTSD. And then in 2019, which is not that long ago, you started seeing things happening in your life that, that told you something was wrong. So what were some of those symptoms? And then I don't know how much you can share, or, you know, as much or as little as you want to share about the, uh, the therapy. PTSD for me is, it's not stuff that I've seen. It's stuff that I can imagine happening that's not realistic. I think in the wild kingdom, man is the most vicious. We're capable of doing things to each other that shouldn't be done. And I, would, I can imagine those and get creative in my mind. And I, I wanted those to go away because they're not going to happen. Worrying about things again that aren't going to happen. So I started taking treatment and, and this treatment's good because it's administered by a doctor and you're in a safe place and they're watching you, but you just, it's almost like you get a, you get a, um, a tour of your own soul from yourself and you just wake up refreshed and, and you could, you just compartmentalize a lot of the nonsense and push it away. Like I remember um, a prime example, uh, packing a suitcase in the spare room. If I hear a noise and you know, I kind of get jumpy, but after this treatment, I would hear a noise like from the closet and I'm like, you could fuck off too. And just like, keep going. Like, so, you know, just, it, it eases your mind, but it's, it's not one size fits all, but there's so much out there that, that is available that I wish people were just, you know, you know, that for crying out loud, they're handing out crack pipes now from the government. They should at least give veterans some sort of treatment. So you have this concept that you talk about in the book of the first day. Can we touch on this? Like, you know, you reference that, you know, you had your first day in Buds and you had your first day speaking about the Osama bin Laden kill, you know, your first day after leaving the Navy. And I think, again, we, we have this view of guys like you who, you know, you, there's no fear, you know, you can handle anything. But you say in the book, you know, whether you're a Fortune 500 CEO, or you're a terrified 14 year old stepping into a high school homeroom, or you're the SEAL Team 6 operator who shoots bin Laden. There's still that, the nerves, there's still the fear, there's still the anxiety. Talk about this, this concept of first day. Well, there, I mean, there should be. Everyone's had their first day somewhere. And we're all going to continue to have. That's what the book, The Way Forward, is about. Yeah, okay, you did all this, now what? And people need to realize that fear is natural. It's okay to be afraid because that makes you think more clearly. Like I was talking about the noise behind me. That's fear working for you. The, the problem with fear is there's a fine line because panic is contagious. If one person panics, everybody panics. And you got to stop that. Like panic is contagious, but so is calm. And as a leader, it doesn't matter what you feel. If you portray calm, your people will be calm. A prime example of, of panic being contagious is the great toilet paper incidents in 2020. Somebody saw somebody buy all the toilet paper. So they went somewhere else and bought all the toilet paper. Someone saw them. So they went and bought it all because they're panicking. 
And that's that's all it is. So fear is natural. Don't don't be afraid to be afraid, but don't let it overtake you. And I've also heard you talk about stress, like saying stress is a choice. Talk, talk to you about, us about that mindset. Yeah, stress is in your mind. And if you can talk, take a second, take a deep breath and make an informed decision as opposed to just, and I give myself my own advice every single day, like stressing out, trying to get to the TSA line, you're, you're going to be fine. You're going to make it. Don't worry about stuff that's not going to happen. But like, if you, if you can calm down, take a breath, put stress down and forget about it. Slow is smooth. smooth. You want to be fast, slow down. Yeah. And, you know, I just I'm thinking about there's, there's a client who I have who had to raise some, a bunch of capital for starting another business. And it was scary and hard the first time he did it. And then he had to do it again and then again and then again. Like by the second time and third time and fourth time, it wasn't scary. It, was hard. it wasn't hard. You know, obviously we're talking, you know, exponentially different planet that, that you exist on in terms of what you've experienced and done. But you get through that, right? You go through it the first time. It sucks. It's hard. There's more fear, therefore more stress. But as you do it more, you know, you, you realize, wait, what was I so stressed about? Well, yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things, too. It's kind of like moving around as much as I did. Afghanistan, Iraq, other places around the world. No matter where you are, you're going to get used to it. You're going to get used to being uncomfortable. Um, time's going to heal everything. And, I mean, prove me wrong. It's, it, it's just, it is what it is. It's not so much embrace the suck, but it's like we, uh, if you wake up in a bad mood at five in the morning, it's, you're going to reach bedtime again. It's going to get there. You know, just got to compartmentalize one thing at a time. The, just the realization that the unnormal can become normal just with time. So for the listener who, who listens to this interview, you know, wants to buy the book. And by the way, you know, for the listener, we'll, we'll tell you where to buy the book. And that'll be linked in the action plan as well as always. But they want to take some action items out of this conversation. I want them to learn from you, Rob, learn from your experiences, learn from this book. Like, what can they do? Maybe in the next 24 or 48 hours, they're an action item or a couple action items you can recommend that, that people can take away from this and, and actually employ in their, their lives. Yeah, make a list. Don't, don't just think I got to do this and got to do that because you're going to leave loose ends. Make a list as best you can in order of you know, priority and then delete everything except the top five. And then try to get those done. When you get stressed out, write down what and why stressed you out about it. And then when you're in bed at night, because that gives you time to think about it, write down how you could have handled it better. Just a little stress log. I, you know, moving around everywhere, moving stuff, put, trying to put up drapes, whatever the hell I'm doing. And just, if, if I don't write it down, and I, once you can see it, it's like the monster. There he is. I see him. I like to dive with sharks. I think it's great. I've been in with 33 different great whites, tiger sharks. The scariest part of diving with sharks is moving from the bench on the boat into the water because it's the fear. Once you get into it, you're like, oh, that's cool. This isn't that bad. I don't recommend great whites for everyone, but definitely tigers. Ah, I, I'm into it. I, I would definitely be down for it. So, so Rob, share with us, with the listeners, where are you at these days? What are you up to? Kind of what's next for you? What are you working on? Well, I'm doing some travel. I'm obviously the book, The Way Forward with Dakota Meyer. I'm giving speeches. My apparel business is fun. I like shipmate. Because um, that's a word like they got rid of in the Navy because it was um, offensive or something like that. I think shit makes the best word ever. But I, I also have a shirt called Front Toward Enemy, which is bottom line is keep it simple. One of our models is keep it simple, stupid kiss. Front Toward Enemy is on the front of a Claymore mine. And it's simple, meaning, well, if this is a directional mine, which way does it go? Oh, Front Toward Enemy. And on the back, it says back. So simple, I, so I invented a shirt. That's, that's a good way to face life. You got a problem? front towards the enemy. And then it says back because I can tell people, well, the hoodie you bought is not a hoodie. It's directions on how to wear a hoodie. Just keeping it simple. So a lot of that, I got a beer company called Armed Forces Brewing Company. 
just look that up on my website. You can invest and then um, get, just get some other stuff. What, what else are we doing? I'm sure there's other stuff. Just trying to do some entrepreneur stuff. Trying to, I'm start, I will be starting a podcast. Uh, I got a hot sauce. Rob O'Neill's Top Secret Hot Sauce. I'll be selling that very soon. Just kind of fun stuff. Trying to, trying to you know, entertain myself. And, and I like traveling because I get to talk to people face to face. I think I'm very froggy because I, I talked to probably 5,000 people last week. And it's just nice to get out because real people aren't on social media and aren't on cable news. Real people are actually real and they actually care about each other. And although they disagree, it's not the same as on Twitter. It's like, wow, that I never, in person, I never thought about it that way as opposed to just calling me whatever name in the book. But I, you know, I like to travel, I like to talk to people, new things, sports events, stuff like that. Amen, man. Well said, especially the stuff about real people or just real people, no matter what you believe. It's like, man, you get people together. and I mean, you realize most people are the same. And it's like with Navy SEALs, they're like, You're, you must be superhuman. No, we're not superhuman. We just get it. We got one percenters like everyone else that can run the five minute miles nonstop. But most guys are like me. My my favorite joke is I could probably be on the cover of Decent Shape magazine. Yeah. Well, you've done some world class things, man. So humbled and absolutely honored to have you on, Rob. Where can listeners find you, follow you on social media, buy the book, etc.? Yeah, ch- uh, check out robertjoneal.com. That leads to my speaking engagements, my um, Twitter handle, which is Mikuya, which is a funny story. You got to tell us now. When I was still in the Navy, they said there's this thing called Twitter and you got to get on it anonymously because you can just talk crap to everybody. And so I, I thought, well, we say hoo in SEAL training. I'm an Irish guy, so Mick hoo And then my name leaked as killing Bin Laden. I woke up with like 10,000 followers. I'm like, great. Now I'm Mick hoo forever. So, but it's fun. You know, entertainment. I, I don't take social media that serious. I like to poke fun at people and make jokes. So it's, it's pretty entertaining. Excellent. Yeah. You're a good follow. So excellent for listeners. I recommend you listen to him, find him, follow him, subscribe to the podcast. Whenever you do, whenever you do get that launch, Rob, let me know. We'll get that out there. We'll share it for sure. So thanks, man. Appreciate it. Great stories. Appreciate the time. And I hope the book launch just absolutely crushes it. Outstanding. I really appreciate your time. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, Let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app. If you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.